This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino, the The Big Big Dinosaur Dinosaur Podcast, Podcast. where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week, our dinosaur of the day is Velociraptor, which you may recognize. It's amazing that we got to episode 83 before we did Velociraptor. We've talked about it a lot, though. Yes, We have an interview with Jeff Jones, the author of The Dinosaur 4, and we have some dinosaur news. And a big thank you to all of our patrons. And this week, we'd like to especially thank our patrons at the reward tier where we give them a special recognition. So a big thank you to Chris, Nicholas, Kyle and Betsy, Scotty and Jackson. Yeah, thank you so much. You may notice if you listen to previous episodes, this list is slowly growing. Yeah. So if you would like to join the list of growing patrons, or you can donate at other levels too with different rewards, please go to patreon.com slash I Before we get into the interview, I just want to mention that although our interview is clean, since we know there are kids listening, the book does have some adult themes. So if you're not comfortable reading Jurassic Park, and a little bit of extra adult love life stuff. It might not be the book for you, probably not for kids. But there are other parts of the book that are very cool and dinosaur-y that don't have any PG-13 to R-rated stuff. So that's what we talk about in this interview. That being said, I thought the book was great, and we were very happy to speak with Jeff. So let's just jump right into the interview. We're joined today by Jeff Jones. He has a degree in creative writing from the University of Colorado, and he has written for the Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Lego, Marvel, and other video game franchises. And of course, we're speaking with him today because he's also the author of The Dinosaur 4. So jumping right in, your thesis was a novella about dragons taking over the world. Was that when you got interested in dinosaurs or did that come earlier? Uh, well, I've been interested in dinosaurs all my life. I mean, who who doesn't grow up loving dinosaurs? Um, I remember a nightmare when I was probably seven or eight years old of a T-Rex chasing me around my backyard and, and I was climbing up in trees trying to escape. <laughs> but I've always liked monster stories. And I think the novella was an attempt at a, at a monster story I was trying in college. Cool. Mm-hmm. So do you have a favorite dinosaur? Well, it's got to be T-Rex. <laughs> There's just no no greater monster, you know. It's such a such an awesome killer with just that mouthful of teeth coming at you. Yeah, it seemed like you enjoyed writing about T Rex in your book. Yeah, it was fun. 
And I really wanted to put in the the scene that you always see drawings and paintings of, but we've never really seen brought to life with the T-Rex versus the Triceratops. That was a lot of fun. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, that was a good scene. Oh, thanks. So it's probably not surprising, but my favorite thing about the book was the way that you depicted all these dinosaurs. How much research did you put into how the dinosaurs behaved and other attributes of them? Well, I've always tried to keep up with what's going on. And so i certainly not an expert, but if I see a dinosaur article, I would always stop and read it. And I would always read books from the library with my kids. I would try to read them dinosaur books. <laughs> and then for Dinosaur 4, I did a lot of looking around on the internet, making sure that the things I thought I remembered were all more or less accurate. You know, I've followed the debate over the years about whether a T-Rex is a hunter or a scavenger. And so I had him doing both. I had him uh, attacking people and then getting distracted when he smelled a carcass early on in the story. Yeah. One thing that was fun for me was there's been articles over the years about the ideas that the big sauropod tails could possibly go faster than the speed of sound. And so I, I had a scene with that. And then after the book was finished and published, there was an article that came out about weaponized tails with, uh, with a sauropod that was just, you know, renewed focus on that. And it was pretty cool to see that. Just awesome, especially that basically validates what you wrote. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was fun. Were you living in Colorado while you were writing the book? Just wondering if that had influenced anything. Yeah, I was. I was. And I I did want to make sure that the uh, species I had were all Colorado natives and lived at pretty much the same time as I have my characters go to. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely a nice touch that a lot of people miss is the fact that not all dinosaurs were around at the same time. So... In your book, the first encounter that the time travelers have with the dinosaur is that aggressive male Edmontosaurus. And I think that might be my favorite scene in the book. <laughs> yeah, they usually usually people depict Edmontosaurus and other hadrosaurs as like big docile cows. How did you decide to make that like a big threat in the book? Well, I wanted I wanted a lot of unique deaths. I didn't want just a T-Rex munching on people chapter after chapter. So I wanted to, wanted to come up with some fun deaths. And, you know, I have William say in the book, and this is true, that in Africa, more people are killed by hippos than by lions or tigers. And herbivores are not, they're not the friendly veggie sources that you see in Jurassic Park. They're often, you know, really dangerous. If you think of a bull or, or a bull moose and how dangerous they can be. Plus, I liked that it, it was a surprising attack having the Edmontosaurus come and try to defend its territory. Yeah, it was clever. I liked that a lot. Mm -hmm. Thanks. They also sounded a little bit gross. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, uh, you know, I wanted the dinosaurs to feel real. I didn't want them to feel like, like zoo animals. I wanted them to to look like something you'd see on a, on a safari with, uh, you know, matted fur and bugs buzzing around them and that sort of thing. I I felt like that would make it more real and not fur, obviously, but feathers. Yeah. 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 Cool. And then kind of put the same thing in the works for the Triceratops. Those were actually quite deadly in the book. Yeah, yeah. I had this image in my head of, uh, of a hillside covered with them, sort of like the bison that you'd see in the uh, old American West. And just the thought that you wouldn't really want to get all that close to those guys. Yeah, yeah, that kind of like herd mentality, anything that approaches is a potential threat. Mm-hmm. Even though they're herbivores and they don't necessarily want to eat you, they might be worried about what you might do to them. So, yeah. Cool. So, I have another question about an animal in the book. You have these huge ticks. 
that pop up <laughs> at various points. Are those real or did you make those up? I don't know too much about ancient insects. Those are largely an invention, but you know, you always see oversized insects in a lot of the fossil record, but you don't see tons of them. So that's that's largely an invention, but it felt like a a little stretching that I could get away with just based on the the other kinds of oversized insects that we've seen. Yeah, and they were pretty gross and intense <laughs> at times. Yes. Yeah, that was fun. That was fun. Are there any other animals or dinosaurs that you would have liked to have included that you couldn't find a way to work in? Well, I actually had a, a reader contact me, and I can't remember the species right now, but the, the giant pterosaur-type creature that would walk around and attack people with its beak. Um, maybe you guys know the one I'm Might talking about. Quetzalcoatlus, I think. Yeah, it mm. uh, that guy would be fun for <laughs> sure. Yeah, everybody loves the Stegosaurus, but you can't have have him around at the same time as uh, as these others, as the T Rex and the Triceratops. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Unless you want to do something especially crazy with your time travel, where it like also jumps back and brings a Stegosaurus with it or something. <laughs> yeah, I, I had enough trouble trying to keep everything straight for everybody. I wanted to have just one time in the in the prehistory. Yeah. <laughs> Time travel always gets a little bit confusing. Yeah. Cool. So you wrote the book and you kind of call it a B-movie time travel thriller. How'd you decide on that style of book? Well, it's the sort of thing I have fun with. I mean, I love, I love horror movies. I love um, Stephen King stuff. I love anything with monsters. And I didn't want to write something with a lot of philosophy. Uh, you know, I love Jurassic Park. It's the, the book is great fun, but I didn't want to spend time exploring the science and the philosophy and all that. I just wanted to run with the characters and the action. And that seems to have resonated with a lot of readers. Like, yeah, okay, this is a fun ride. It's a roller coaster. It's not, not fine literature, but, but uh, people seem to have fun with it and certainly don't want to oversell it. Yeah. Because I saw your description of it as like a B-movie thriller, so I knew exactly kind of what you were going for. And I think for that style of book, you really nailed it. Well, thanks. I could see like maybe, like I saw a couple of reviews where people were like, oh, I didn't like this character or whatever. And I was like, well, that's kind of the point, though, that they're a little bit over the top. And, you know, this guy's supposed to be really hateable, just like when you watch a movie and there's a super obvious villain. <laughs> Yeah, I had fun with that. One of the movies that I was trying to mimic or that was an inspiration for me, strangely enough, is Alien, mm -hmm. where, you know, when you first saw that movie in 1979, you didn't know who the hero was going to turn out to be. And you didn't know that that one of them was actually a secret villain. And I tried to do that with Dinosaur 4, where not everybody's quite who they seem or who you think they are right at the beginning. And as it unfolds, you realize, okay, this guy's got a, a little bit of a different <laughs> agenda than you thought at the beginning. Yeah, a little bit screwy. Yeah, yeah. a lot screwy, really. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, he was sympathetic at times, too. I tried to, tried to keep things gray. Yeah, <laughs> Try to, you know, that's real life. So what was the inspiration for the other characters? I know I've got William has the two boys and that so he somewhat knows about dinosaurs and he's the only one who can really name any of them or give them an idea of what's going on. You know, I didn't want there to be dinosaur experts. I didn't want a, a paleontologist in here. I didn't want any soldiers or anybody like that. But I needed somebody that could help explain a few things here and there and recognize a few things. So the idea of a father who's, who's learned all this stuff through his kids 
seemed like the perfect fit. You know, somebody that an everyday person could relate to, but who could also bring a little bit of knowledge to the story. Yeah, cool. And then, of course, Buddy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm I'm a big dog fan and uh, loved having Buddy running around. Yeah, he was great. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, he was fun. Had him get involved in the action a few times. Definitely, yeah. He helped them out a few times. Yeah. So a little more general point, but you had a great narrator for your Audible edition of the book. How did you find that narrator? Yeah, Nick Podell did a great job. And I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks between my day job and writing and and my kids and family. I don't have much time to read, but I can do audiobooks. And I was listening to a book called The Knife of Never Letting Go, which is a a fun little young adult uh, story about an alien world where all of the male's thoughts can be heard by anyone around them, which is really strange. Yeah. And the protagonist is going on an adventure, you know, fleeing from trouble with a dog and they can talk to each other telepathically. They're both males. And Nick Podell did the narration for this and just blew me away. I mean, he was, he was absolutely incredible. So I looked him up, tracked him down and uh, hired him for the book and uh, was just thrilled with the job that he did. Yeah, it was really good. I'll have to check out that book now, too. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. He's done, he's done a bunch. On some of the audiobook forums I go to, he's, he's pretty highly regarded. Good guy. Nice. Are you thinking of doing a sequel to this book? So I'm not, uh, not currently planning a sequel. I did leave an opening for one, but right now I'm working on another book. It's similar in theme in that it's about a group of sort of everyday people uh, surviving a disaster, but this disaster is the end of the world. And so much bigger in scale. And I've had a lot of readers contact me and say, you know, they want more dinosaurs, more dinosaurs. I'm trying to figure out how I can make that work. It's pretty tricky. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The one way I've seen dinosaurs kind of in post-apocalyptic settings is they do like robot dinosaurs. There's Uh, quite a few versions of that going around. But those aren't, you know, it's not really dinosaurs and it's more man versus machine thing. Yeah. I'm going to keep thinking about it. When the book comes out, people will have to check it out and see if I come up with anything. Good. Yeah. I was going to say I'm on that bandwagon. More dinosaurs. Uh, uh, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons I went with dinosaurs. There aren't enough great books with dinosaurs in them. We need more. They're so much fun. Yeah. I kind of thought too with your title, The Dinosaur 4, it kind of sounded like the Fantastic Four or something like the beginning of a series all about these characters. Yeah, I went back and forth on the title. It, you know, halfway through the book, you realize that it's a spoiler about uh, <laughs> about how things might end up. But I felt that that was okay because I still had a surprise or two after things came into being with the numbers as they were. Yeah. 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 It was a good twist at the end. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. I never would have never would have called it the Dinosaur Four if I didn't have a little extra surprise there. <laughs> <laughs> I also liked you have a few passages where you're inside the different dinosaurs' heads, and I guess the also the crocodile, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I had mixed responses to that. Some people liked it, some people didn't. I thought it was fun to sort of explain, and, you know, with the crocodile following them along, or really, what is it, like a dinosuchus, I think? I wanted to be able to explain what was going on and why it was following and then turning back and uh, and that sort of thing. I tried not to make them smarter than they should have been, but it was fun. I had fun with it. Yeah, I think it's fun to do dinosaur thoughts, too, because dinosaurs, some of them at least, had pretty big brains and may have had semi-complex thoughts. It's not all just eat. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. 
Well, and and uh, was it Bacher that did that so well with with Raptor Red? Oh yeah, that was a great book. Yeah, that's a lot of fun to read too. Yep. So living in Colorado, do you go to a lot of museums or see the sites? Dinosaur National Monuments, not. Yeah, yeah, we have a, a great dinosaur exhibit in Denver. I saw your interview about the Black Hills Institute up in South Dakota. I've been up there and seen that, and uh, it's fun. There's there's more that I need to get to, but even at CU, there's a, a great Triceratops skull that they've got. You can get right up close to at a museum on the campus. Cool. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, Colorado has a lot. We were what was the other one? Dinosaur Ridge Trail, I think it's called. Yep, you can walk along and see see fossils right there on the side of the mountain. That's great. A lot of fun. It's not a lot of that in California. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is it hard to juggle dinosaurs with the day job? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of context switching. It's tough, but I love storytelling. I loved doing that as a game designer and uh, love doing that now. And I love hearing from fans that are having fun with it. So that keeps me motivated. Yeah. Yeah. As a game designer, have you been able to work on any kind of dinosaur-related games? No, never got into into anything with dinosaurs. Played a few, but <laughs> never never worked on any. Yeah. And I'm not doing games anymore. I'm working on business software now. I got a grown-up job. <laughs> <laughs> so this is sort of my creative outlet for, for the storytelling side of things. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. Just one last question. Do you have any advice for... I guess other creative types who also have an interest in dinosaurs and might want to have some kind of outlet for their creativity. Well, there's for artists, there's so much great dinosaur art out there on the inter- internet. The paleo art sites are just wonderful to go through and sharing those and seeing those is a lot of fun. The biggest thing as a writer is just understand how much polishing and rewriting and, and editing and, and getting feedback. That was something that I learned as a game designer, you know, relying on the testers to give you feedback about what was working and what wasn't. And I really translated that into my writing. I spent about a year writing the book, and then I spent another two years rewriting and polishing and editing. And I worked with a professional editor and, and had a lot of beta readers and all that just to get something that's that's as good as you can make it before you you really put it out there in front of people. Definitely. And just know that that has to happen and be prepared for it and work through it. Definitely. And how did your early readers, what did they think of the dinosaurs? Oh, they loved them. Um, (laughs) You know, one of the big changes to the early drafts was adding in Morgan. I originally only had nine characters and bringing in Morgan as a a source of humor with a lot of sarcasm and and sort of juvenile humor was (laughs) one of the changes that I made. But just hearing from people, getting feedback on what's working, what's confusing, tightening it all up as you go. Great. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. This has been fun and I appreciate the opportunity. Is there anything else you want to promote or mention? Oh, just um, if anybody out there reads the book, I love hearing from readers and uh, always appreciate the feedback. Yeah. Uh, Where's the best place for readers to find you? At jeffjoneswriter.com and it's G-E-O-F-F. And I think I linked to that off of Amazon. You can find me. I'm not, I'm not hiding. You can find me. Pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> great. Again, we want to give a big thank you to Jeff for speaking with us this week. Yeah, we had a great time. Yeah, it was a very good interview. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. 
What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. All right. First in the news, there's a new sauropod that was uncovered in Montana And it has been nicknamed Big Monty, and there is a pretty good reason. It's a pretty good name. It is. (laughs) So far, they have found a three-foot or about one-meter sauropod vertebra and pieces of a rib, which are likely part of a rib that might be about nine feet or a little less than three meters in length. It's from the Jurassic era and roughly 150 million years old, making it about the same age as Brachiosaurus and Apatosaurus, which are also huge, but those were both discovered in Colorado, possibly making Big Monty the largest dinosaur to be discovered in Montana. Oh, Monty. (laughs) Yeah, Big Monty. (laughs) It is being excavated by the Judith River Dinosaur Institute, and they say that they have 60-plus volunteers helping to complete the excavation. They also say that it might take two to three years to excavate Big Monty, but the time depends a lot on the number of fossils and what condition they're in. The long time frame is partly because, as is often the case, the fossils are sticking out of a steep hillside, so it'll take some pretty heavy equipment at the start to get down to the fossil before they can start the meticulous excavation. And they can't be extracted nonstop. They have to do their excavating when weather allows, which is why it can take so long. We'll have to see what official name they come up with if they work Montana into it somehow. Or Biggest Montanasaurus. <laughs> Probably not. It could be Bigasaurus Montanensis. We'll leave it up to them. <laughs> yeah, like it's our decision who <laughs> names it. <laughs> 
Another paper recently published, this one in Nature Communications, is adding evidence that the KPG extinction was quick, like if a meteor caused the extinction, for instance, and not volcanoes. The article is titled Macrofossil Evidence for a Rapid and Severe Cretaceous Paleogene Mass Extinction in Antarctica. It was written by James D. Witts and others, and previously it had been hypothesized that at high latitudes, meaning near the North or South Pole, they're both considered high latitudes because they're big numbers, animals would be less affected by the Chicxulub impact. Partly that's because they would be farther from the impact since the impact was near the equator, but mostly it's because animals in areas like Antarctica are used to having inconsistent food supply and every winter they have to go months without much of any sun. So the thought was, well, maybe if the earth was blanketed from the sun for a year or two, the animals that were used to not having the sun for a couple months might be less affected. So these researchers were looking for some evidence and they went down to the Lopez de Bertadano formation of Seymour Island in Antarctica. And if you're wondering, that's at the end of that kind of long isthmus swirly island chain thing that sticks out of Antarctica towards South America. So Witz and his colleagues found many fossilized mollusks and they found a layer of iridium in their stratigraphic section. And the neat thing about iridium is that the Chicxulub impact effectively showered the whole earth in iridium and it's kind of an unusual element to find but it made a really clear line in lots of fossil strata showing exactly when the Chicxulub impact happened. So it's a really convenient way to see if something was before or after the impact. So what they did was they looked at mollusks that were fossilized right above the ceridium layer and then right below it, and they could compare which species were there to see possibly which ones went extinct. So they combined their new information with others' data, and they made a graph of 66 bivalve, gastropod, and cephalopod species that were around in the late Cretaceous, and about a third of them appeared to go extinct right at that 66 million years ago mark. And that was true, too, of the ones that they were looking at, where in the section of fossil above the iridium, there was a pretty diverse group of mollusks, but then below the iridium, a lot of them kind of disappeared. So makes you think that maybe that whatever happened with that iridium made them go away. So ultimately, they wrote that their research is consistent with a large impactor like the Chicxulub impactor, and they don't see, quote, a significant contribution from Deccan traps volcanism during the late Maastrichtian, end quote, really being much of an effect. So... Pretty cool. I am a big fan of the large impactor extinction hypothesis. I think it tends to fit more of the details than a lot of the other ones. So it's nice to see more evidence pointing in that direction. Yeah. What happens in iridium stays in iridium. <laughs> How long have you been waiting for that one? I was trying to say it earlier, but you just plowed right through. Oh, no. So I had to wait. <laughs> <laughs> it showed. <laughs> Thanks. Next, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on with museums, which is really cool. The Museum of the Rockies in Bozeman, Montana, which Garrett and I will be going to very soon and we're pretty excited about. 
They're hosting a traveling exhibit called Growth and Behavior of Dinosaurs, and this exhibit shows how juvenile dinosaurs look different from adults, and so it's fitting that it's on exhibit at Jack Horner's former museum. They've partnered with Kokoro Japan, and you can see a full-size animatronic T-Rex, as well as animatronic Triceratops as a subadult, juvenile, and baby, and the growth series of five T-Rex skulls, so sounds like a pretty cool exhibit. Hopefully it's still there when we're there. I hope so, too. I'll have to check. Or hopefully it gets there by the time we're there. I think it's already there. Okay, cool. I'm not used to being able to go to the museums. Next, the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia has a newish exhibit called Dinosaurs Unearthed. And I say newish newish because they had that exhibit back in October of 2013, too. This exhibit will have animatronic dinosaurs, skeletons, fossilized casts, teeth, and copper lights, dinosaur poop as well as ways to interact with robotic dinosaurs to learn about their movements. And on opening weekend, June 24th, visitors got to see fossils of Dryptosaurus on display. And Dryptosaurus is rarely on display to help preserve it. And the McClung Museum at the University of Tennessee is hosting a family sleepover event where visitors can see their dinosaur discoveries exhibit after hours and take a flashlight tour. And it costs $50 per person. It's open to families with children ages 5 to 11, but museum members get a $10 discount. Unfortunately, apparently registration for the sleepover is already closed, which is a bummer. But you can call the museum about future events and maybe they'll have another sleepover event. $50 a person. Oof. Yeah. And they're already sold out. I know. It's dinosaurs overnight. I guess that's why they can charge $50 a person. Exactly. Speaking of museums in Tennessee, there's a dinosaur park in Bluff City, Tennessee, called Backyard Terrors, which may be closed in a year if it doesn't get up to code. They were supposed to have already made updates to get to code, but they got a one-year extension just in time, so they weren't forced to close this year. So Backyard Terrors is a art exhibit in a man's backyard with about 50 dinosaur sculptures set around an outdoor park, and apparently They held a Halloween event last year that about 3,200 people showed up to, and it got a lot of complaints from the neighbors, which prompted an inspection and the ensuing code violations. And by the way, 3,200 is almost double the population of Bluff City. That's crazy. (laughs) Must have been a good party. So I'm sure it drew a lot of people. Yeah, it kind of makes sense because it's a very kid-friendly place. So if you're looking for a place to go trick-or-treating and you're in a rural area, it would make sense to go somewhere with a little bit of an event. It sounds like it all started because the area is zoned for residential use. I mean, it's in a man's backyard and it has gotten so popular. They did get a special use permit to allow them to stay open, but they need to make some more parking and new restrooms. They aren't allowed to charge admission. They can't hold any more public special events and they can only have limited private special events from here on out as part of that permit since it's a residential area. It opened in 2007, and inspectors found about $20,000 worth of improvements that need to be made. So far, they've demolished a trailer to put in a new restroom, but they need to do a lot more work. And since the park is required to operate completely on donations, it's taken a little bit of time to raise money, which is why they filed for that one-year extension. Luckily, several local residents and business owners have volunteered their time and equipment to help, so progress is moving forward. That's good. Yep. It seems like they'll probably make it in time. They have a GoFundMe page, and I think they're at 
like half of their goal already and they get donations regularly. It's pretty cool though. Some of the dinosaurs you made look really neat. They're very artsy. They have some feathers and he's got like a big stegosaurus that he said took about two months to make. It's all multicolored and everything. Wow. Yeah. Speaking of art, ABC News posted an article recently about paleo artists and how they have a lot of influence in how the public views dinosaurs. There's not too much known about what colors dinosaurs were or what patterns were on their skin. So paleo artists such as Michael Skrepnik, who painted the new Spiclipius ceratopsia, nicknamed Judith, can take some liberties. And Skrepnik gave Judith a green-brown body with a white underbelly and black stripes on its back and black and white circles on its frills. We do know now, based on melanosomes found in the soft tissue of dinosaurs discovered in the 90s, that some dinosaurs were brown, black, red, or white, but we only know for sure how a handful of dinosaurs looked, like Microraptor, which was iridescent black, and Anchiornis, those mostly gray and black with white tips on the wings, tails, and feet. In the article, Dr. Hans-Dieter Seuss, the chair of paleobiology for the Smithsonian Institute's National Museum of Natural History, said that paleo artists choose the color of dinosaurs depending on the work's context. And so children's books tend to have colder, brighter colors. Illustrations for scientific papers tend to be more conservative and approved by the scientists writing the paper. And larger dinosaurs tend to be darker, while smaller dinosaurs are more colorful. And that's based on how modern animals look. And a dinosaur's environment also probably influenced what color they were. As an example, Nanaxaurus, a tyrannosaur that lived in Alaska, may have been white to blend in. Next, the Ann Arbor Summer Festival this year included some awesome-looking 18-foot-tall dinosaur puppets. Puppets? Well, they're puppets in that they're acrobats in dinosaur costumes and they walk on stilts. That's pretty cool. Yes. I don't think I've ever seen uh, stilts included in one of those costumes. Yeah, me either. Yeah. The pictures looked cool. So they're part of the Netherlands Close Act Theater's performance called Saurus. And in the photos, the dinosaurs are silver and black and very, very bird-like with (laughs) beaks and feathers. They're actually, they're very raptor-like, I'd say. And there's three of them. And then there's another person in a black and silver suit on stilts that Looks like they're kind of leading this pack. Cool. Mm-hmm. Kind of reminded me of the Lion King costumes. Nice. Next, Clarendon Hills in Illinois has a life-size sculpture of a green T-Rex. And this T-Rex's name is Jurassic Jimmy, chosen by students in nearby Prospect School, though that name has already been shortened to JJ. <laughs> and JJ is part of an Arts in Our Park program which plans to have more statues and works of art appear in the park district over the next decade. And hopefully most more of those will be dinosaurs. They should call it dinos in our parks instead of arts in our parks. Well, I don't think it's exclusively dinosaurs. I know, but it should be. Yeah. <laughs> next, a group of people dressed in T-Rex costumes, or a pack of T-Rexes, as the article said, they joined a yoga session on Parliament Hill in Ottawa, Canada. And it was part of a promotion for the Nature Museum's Ultimate Dinosaurs exhibition. And in a video posted on Ottawa Metro, they walk pretty slowly through a huge crowd of people on yoga mats. And they're being very careful not to step on anybody. Cool. In Taiwan, a pet salon grooms people's pets to look like dinosaurs. So Mm. if you have a cat or a dog and you want them to look like Stegosaurus or something... 
got to go to Taiwan. But anyway, they also do other animals or animated characters, and they claim to be able to make pets look like anything, as long as they have enough fur, and they'll shave pets, but they do not dye the fur. One of the designs is for Stegosaurus, and they have a picture where they make a cat look like a Stegosaurus, <laughs> and basically they clump the fur to look kind of like the, the plates. It's interesting that they're okay with shaving a cat, but not dyeing it. Yeah. I feel like a cat would be more okay with getting dyed than shaved. I don't know. But uh, it probably doesn't like either. <laughs> probably not. But according to the owner of the salon, Oshijo, quote, when a cat gets angry, the fur on its back erects. That made us come up with the Stegosaurus design. <laughs> it makes the cat look like a small dinosaur, end quote. Last, thanks to Steve for emailing us this one. Instructables has a tutorial on how to make your own dinosaur corn cob holders. All you have to do is cut open some plastic dinosaurs, secure cob holders into them with casting resin, and eat your corn. Well, okay, there's actually a few other materials you'll need. Instructables provides a list and more, much more detailed instructions. But as Steve put it to us in his email, quote, this is a do-it-yourself project for those very crafty dino wranglers out there. I'm not sure how authentic they are considering that corn was not hybridized until much, much later, but hey, it's cute. <laughs> Quote, and we agree, Steve. Very cute. Probably makes it much more fun to eat corn, too. Yeah. Most people just have corn cob holders shaped like corn, which I always think is kind of weird. Yeah. You've got like little corns holding your big corn. <laughs> Dinosaurs is better. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So now on to our dinosaur of the day, Velociraptor, and that name means Swift Caesar. There's two valid species. There's Velociraptor mongoliensis, which is the type species, and Velociraptor osmolske, which was named in 2008 when they found a skull in Inner Mongolia. Peter Kaizen found the first Velociraptor fossil in 1923 as part of the American Museum of Natural History expedition to the Gobi Desert in Mongolia. He found a crushed but complete skull and some second toe claws and Henry Fairfield Osborne named the new genus Velociraptor. The species name Mongoliensis is named after Mongolia. Earlier in 1924, Osborne had called it Ovoraptor in a press article, but it wasn't a formal description or named in a scientific journal, so it's a nomum nudum, which means naked name. In 2008, Pascal Godefroy and colleagues named bones found in 1999 by the Sino-Belgian Dinosaur Expedition's Velociraptor osmolske for the Polish paleontologist Halska Osmolska, and they found that it was Velociraptor but wasn't similar enough to just be named Velociraptor mongoliensis. 
Previously recognized Velociraptor species include Velociraptor anteropus and Velociraptor langstoni, which was formerly Deinonychus anteropus and Sornithelestes langstoni. More than a dozen skeletons have been described, which is more than any other dromaeosaurid. In 1990, a joint Mongolian-American expedition in the Gobi found more Velociraptor skeletons, and one is nicknamed Ichabod Craniosaurus because it's a fairly complete skeleton without a skull. <laughs> Two Velociraptor-like skulls were found in an oviraptorid nest in Mongolia, discovered in the 90s as well, although after doing a little more digging, I think that they were found to not be Velociraptor, but Byronosaurus instead. So Velociraptor was a dromaeosaurid theropod that lived in the Cretaceous, and it was originally thought to be part of Megalosauridae, which is a wastebasket taxon. It was a carnivore, it was probably intelligent, and it had a large brain in proportion to its body size, and Velociraptor may have been nocturnal. Adults grew up to be 6.8 feet or 2.07 meters long and weighing 33 pounds or 15 kilograms, and the skull could be up to 10 inches or 25 centimeters long. You may know, and we've talked about before in previous episodes, that's much smaller than how Velociraptor is depicted in Jurassic Park. Yeah, that's more on the order of a Utah raptor size. Yeah, but Velociraptor had a long tail and a long, low skull with an upturned snout, and they may have been able to run as fast as 24 miles per hour or 39 kilometers per hour. They were bipedal and they had feathers. And in 2007, paleontologists found quill knobs on a Velociraptor mongoliensis forearms, which confirmed that it had feathers. Turner, Norrell, and Peter Makovicki said that the feathers on Velociraptor were evidence against the idea that larger Manoraptorans lost their feathers because they were bigger. And quill knobs aren't really found in modern flightless birds, so the fact that Velociraptor had quill knobs probably means that their ancestors could fly, and Velociraptor and other relatives were secondarily flightless though maybe their ancestors used feathers for something other than flight, too. Yeah, because quill knobs just mean that they're firmly attached. So if you're doing something else other than flying, you might still need that. Mm -hmm. So Velociraptor, their arms were too short to fly or glide. They may have used their feathers for display, to help brood, or to increase their speed when running up slopes. Wing-assisted inclined running comes back again. Yeah. <laughs> Not surprisingly, they looked a lot like birds. And like birds, they also had wishbones, they brooded nests, and they had hollow bones, and then of course they had feathers. Kiwi birds are actually similar to velociraptors. They have similar feather types, anatomy, bone structure, and a narrow anatomy of nasal passages. And kiwi birds are very active and flightless, so they make a good model for the metabolism of dromaeosaurids, which probably had a moderate metabolism. And I think that's hilarious <laughs> to compare a kiwi bird, which is so darn cute. <laughs> Velociraptor. That's depicted as being like so ferocious. And... Mm -hmm. Plus they just look so helpless because they don't really have arms or much. Or hands, yeah. yeah. And they just have a really long beak that they slowly walk along a beach poking into the sand. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, back to Velociraptor. Velociraptor had jaws that had 26 to 28 teeth on each side and the back edges of the teeth were more serrated than the front. They also had three curved claws in each hand, similar to the wing bones of modern birds. Their second digit was the longest, and the first was the shortest. They had four toes, but they only walked on their third and fourth toes, and the first toe had a small dew claw, and then the second toe was held off the ground and had a large sickle-shaped claw. Yep, I think everybody knows about that by now. <laughs> yeah, 
and they probably used that to tackle their prey. And the sickle-shaped claw grew to over 2.6 inches or 6.5 centimeters long. They may have been able to climb trees with their toe claws. And one skeleton of Velociraptor is found in a fighting position with Protoceratops. So this was found in 1971 by a Polish-Mongolian team, and they found what they call the fighting dinosaurs when they found them in Mongolia. And at first, scientists thought that the fighting dinosaurs had drowned, but they were preserved in ancient sand dune deposits, so now they think they were buried in sand from a collapsing dune or in a sandstorm, and it probably happened pretty quickly. In the fighting dinosaurs, the Velociraptor's sickle-like claw is in the Protoceratops' throat, and the Protoceratops' beak is clamped on the Velociraptor's right forelimb, so Velociraptor may have used its claw to pierce the jugular vein or trachea instead of slashing and disemboweling its prey. Yikes. Yeah. According to Dr. David Hone, the Velociraptor in fighting dinosaurs was either starving or young and dumb, since the Protoceratops was 50% bigger than it. So that's kind of interesting. A 2005 BBC documentary called The Truth About Killer Dinosaurs created an artificial velociraptor leg with a sickle claw and tried to disembowel a pork belly, but it could not tear it open, which kind of shows that velociraptor may not have been able to disembowel its prey. I wonder how scientific that test was. (laughs) Well, they had a paleontologist oversee it, Philip Manning. They tried to disembowel an animal that didn't evolve for like another... 70 million years too. Yeah. Well, so Philip Manning said, quote, using the claw to slash would have been like me trying to disembowel you with a plastic spoon. Okay. So I guess they figured it wasn't going to work, so it didn't really matter because it wasn't capable anyway. In 2011, Denver Fowler and colleagues said that Velociraptor may have used a, quote, Raptor Prey Restraint, or RPR, where they leaped onto their prey, pinned them, and held onto them with their sickle-shaped claws. Then they would start to eat their prey, which would die from blood loss and organ failure. And then the Velociraptors would use their tails to help them counterbalance. Apparently hawks do the same thing, where they pin down their prey and start eating them alive. Oof. Sounds gruesome. Birds. Yeah. Interestingly, there's not really any evidence that Velociraptor was a pack hunter, as depicted in Jurassic Park. Many isolated fossils have been found, but none closely associated with other specimens. Velociraptor probably ate small animals like reptiles, amphibians, insects, small dinosaurs, and mammals, and it may have been a scavenger. In 2010, David Hone and colleagues published a study of teeth they found in 2008 near a protoceratops jawbone. It was probably a, quote, late-stage carcass consumption by Velociraptor, end quote, because normally it would eat other parts of a protoceratops, or it would go for the throat, as seen in the fighting dinosaurs. Velociraptor also ate pterosaurs. They found a large pterosaur bone in a velociraptor gut in 2012. It probably scavenged that one, since the pterosaur had a large wingspan of six and a half feet or two meters and would have been a pretty formidable foe. Velociraptor may have also fought each other. There's one skull that shows two rows of small punctures, the same size and spacing of velociraptor teeth, and there's no signs of healing, so it probably died of these wounds. And again, as we mentioned, the velociraptors in Jurassic Park were modeled after Deinonychus, also Utah raptor. Apparently, Michael Crichton met John Ostrom, who discovered Deinonychus, to talk about its behavior and appearance, and then apologetically told Ostrom that he used the name velociraptor instead because it sounded more dramatic. (laughs) So I didn't know that John Ostrom knew. 
Yeah, that's funny. And then, of course, Utah Raptor was discovered while Jurassic Park was in production. And we talked to Jim Kirkland about that in episode 34. The raptor sounds in Jurassic Park were tortoise mating sounds, which are used when raptors are barking at each other to talk to each other. (laughs) An article in Slate points out that Jurassic World has a strong female lead, which is, of course, the velociraptor Blue. Blue chooses her ally at the end. It's between Indominus Rex or humans. And, of course, has a close relationship with the character Owen Grady. And Discover Magazine contemplated if velociraptors could be trained the way that Owen Grady trained them. Assuming that velociraptors were pack hunters, and this is based on evidence of a group of dromaeosaur tracks found in 2007 in China, so it is possible, although there's not too much evidence of it, that means that they were intelligent. And according to Jack Horner, in falconry, you train through positive reinforcement by rewarding them with food and protection, so you probably could train velociraptors that way. Also, you would assert dominance and become the alpha, like Owen Grady does, and also do imprinting. Whoever's there when they hatch is seen as the mother, and you see this with geese and other modern birds. And of course, in Jurassic World, they may have just tweaked the Velociraptor DNA to make them more docile. Yeah, once you can bring in the whole, we're just going to mess with their DNA to make them act a certain way or do a certain thing, it opens up just about any possibility. Yeah. Like a human hybrid. Oh, <laughs> glad they don't go that way. This is kind of weird. There's a website called velociraptors.info, and it's the official website for the American Society for Velociraptor Attack Prevention. And the website says that it's a, quote, bipartisan group of professionals dedicated to the diffusion of knowledge concerning velociraptor attack prevention. And according to them, June is National Velociraptor Awareness Month. And quote, the American Society for Velociraptor Attack Prevention, along with the North American Velociraptor Defense Association and the United Velociraptor Widows Fund, will be providing free Velociraptor safety seminars at local Red Cross centers across the nation. Contact your local center for more information, end quote. The website also gives a description of Velociraptors, home buyer tips so you're prepared in case of Velociraptor attacks, and a quiz to find out if your neighbors are Velociraptors. I wish I knew the backstory behind this website. It's very goofy. It is. It's also very official looking. Although I tried to get to the quiz. Looks like that may have been taken down. It's a bit of a bummer. Yeah. Maybe it got put up for like Jurassic World. Someone was having a joke website and then... Could be. It's been left in disrepair. There's a thing on Thingiverse that lets you download a Velociraptor business card, which gives you parts to 3D print, and then you can assemble into your own Velociraptor. So, lots of cool media stuff around Velociraptor. Oh, on a not-as-fun note, in late May of this year, Paltons Park near Romsey, Hampshire in the UK had an incident where 15 passengers were stuck 45 feet in the air for 40 minutes on their new Velociraptor ride. There was a hissing sound, and then the brakes locked the car into the beginning of one of the drops. Eventually, all the riders were evacuated, but... As long as they're not upside down, I always think... If I get stuck on a roller coaster, as long as I'm right side up, I'll be okay. It would be kind of intimidating being at the top of the drop, because then what if it just starts going? Yeah, but that's what you're expecting anyway. Yeah, but in a controlled way, not accidental. It enhances the excitement. Oh, goodness. (laughs) Anyway, Velociraptor is, again, part of Dromaeosauridae, and it's also part of the subfamily Velociraptorinae which are all dromaeosaurs more closely related to Velociraptor than Dromaeosaurus. Other genera in Velociraptorinae include 
Deinonychus, and Sauronithalestes. Dromaeosaurids are carnivorous theropods closely phylogenetically related to Aves, which is a clad that includes birds. They probably originated before the late Jurassic, but the fossil record so far is only of the Cretaceous. They lived all over the world, but there's not that many fossils. Dromaeosaurids from the late Cretaceous in North America have a poor fossil record and are known mostly from isolated teeth. They're often referred to as raptors because of Jurassic Park, and they had S-curved necks, long arms, and large hands with large claws, and their feet had a recurved claw on the second toe, the sickle claw. This claw, again, may have been used for slashing, climbing, or even clawing through insect nests. At least some of them may have lived in groups. Most, if not all, had feathers, and they were bipedal, but they held their second toe off the ground when walking, and they had long tails that may have been used to help counterbalance. They're generally small to medium-sized, though Utah raptor was large, and some could fly or glide, like Chengyu raptor, and they're very bird-like in their behavior and also the fact that they had feathers. And our fun fact of the day is an extension of the one from last episode. So last episode, I mentioned that birds and most likely dinosaurs had ZW chromosomes, and the ZW chromosome scheme determines the gender of the offspring from the mother's egg alone. It's not like humans where the sperm cell has one of the chromosomes and the egg cell has the other chromosome, and then together they make the gender. It's just the mother that determines the gender. And the ZW is the female and the ZZ is the male. So technically speaking, the female could make a ZZ or a ZW from her own genetic material. So it turns out that Komodo dragons have long given birth in captivity and the wild without mating. But I could only find cases where males only were born with the typical ZZ chromosomes. Weirdly, Boa constrictors can also reproduce asexually, but in the scientific study that I found, one female produced 22 young, which were all female, and had WW chromosomes. And that's especially weird because males are usually ZZ and females are usually ZW, but apparently if you make a WW, that's a female too for some reason. So potentially... Some female dinosaurs may have been able to reproduce without needing a mate, which really made it a bad idea in Jurassic Park for them to make all of the dinosaurs female. They mentioned in the movie slash book that since they had frog DNA, they could become a male and then mate, but they might not have even had to do that. Maybe they could have just laid eggs on their own, <laughs> fertilized eggs even. So food for thought if you're ever running a dinosaur theme park. Make them all male. <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Until next time. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader.